This is an ABC podcast. This is the Conversation Hour on ABC Radio Melbourne and Victoria. Would you meet with someone who has caused you or your family harm and trauma? Would it help with grief? Would it help with healing? It's called restorative justice. Nick Healy is your co-host today, as always, joining you from ABC Shepparton. Nick, restorative justice is a program that more and more prisons are offering and there are calls for Victoria to do more of this type of work, some saying that it helps not only the victim but also the perpetrator. Rochelle, something that's been on my mind uh, for quite a while, actually. I've been fascinated by restorative justice and not to derail the conversation straight away, but back in 1986, my sister was murdered. She was killed by her partner. She was 22, um, one of many women, obviously. Uh, And I was quite young. I was only 12 years old at the time and I was very separate to the events and and court and everything like that. So I never actually um, laid eyes or or met uh, her, her murderer. And I've always been really curious to know, as I get older, as I've kind of processed that and worked through it, when I got to the correct age, would I have benefited in some way by being able to speak with him? Would he have benefited from being able to meet family and have conversations? I won't know. And it's intriguing to me that I think we're seeing so many cases of of violence of that nature or property crime or, you know, uh, road crimes, road um, accidents. People being able to meet with those people who've, you know, impacted their lives and, and see change on both sides of the fence. I'm really fascinated by this. When you told me that, your sister had been murdered yesterday, Nick. It was obviously information that I didn't have. And I have to say, first things first, is that all night I thought of, what do I say to you? You know, How do I respond to that information? Because it feels like there are no words to, to say to someone who has lived through like what you and your family have lived through. So even saying I'm sorry doesn't feel like it cuts it. But just to be on the table, that that is huge information that, that you have shared with us and we're really thankful that you have. And I can only imagine, as you said, as you get older, right, when you were a, a young kid when this happened to you and to your family, what goes through your mind then Versus what goes through your mind now and what you would say and what would you do? Do you think it would help? Do you think it would help you? Do you think it would help your family? I think it would help me. I, I do I do think there are family members that this would not be for and I completely understand that. And I think one of the things that um, many people have acknowledged with restorative justice is it is not one size fits all. It is not going to be for every person or every crime. But I do think maybe not now with so many decades behind it, but I think when I kind of hit that 18 to 20 mark, I genuinely think I could have benefited from it. Um, Maybe in a bit of an ineffable level, but I think it would have helped me work through a lot of the, um, I guess, anger and and confusion I had around that. I have a very close girlfriend who met with perpetrators. It was nowhere near on the scale of crime that you've experienced, but it was a break and entering, uh, you know, Two young men entered their home, stole keys, stole their cars. This is a story that we're probably going to hear multiple times today. She met with the perpetrators and, you know, why she, I mean, I know why she did that because she's an incredible woman and I I just think, of course you did. But to, I guess, for her to be able to talk about, you were in my home, you invaded my space, you know, my safety, um, the fear I have for my children or to, to be able to put forward, this is not just a house, this is somebody's home, you know, that you have entered and this is the impact that it's had. So whether or not that helps someone, whether or not it changes the behaviour going forward for the perpetrator as well, but this is something that is happening around the world. It's not happening a lot in Victoria. So today we're looking at restorative justice. You know, would you do it if you are a victim of crime or if if someone in your family is a victim of crime? Would you want to meet with that person that has caused you harm? But also too, as a perpetrator... Does it help them? Does when we when we talk about Nick and we'll go into this today mm. with our incredible panel of guests that we have waiting for us. When we talk about you know what is rehabilitation and what does rehabilitation look like? Where does restorative justice fit into rehabilitation? It, it's got to fit in because I I firmly believe that our justice system can't be purely punitive. 
uh, it cannot be just about punishment. It has to be about giving people an opportunity to to come back and be a member of society, re-enter society in a fair way, uh, but also find themselves changed. So would you meet with someone who has caused you or your family harm and trauma? On ABC Radio, Melbourne and Victoria. This is the Conversation Hour. Rochelle Hunt with you in Melbourne. Nick Healy joining you from ABC Shepparton. Today we're looking at restorative justice. And joining you in the studio, all three of which are from the Innovative, the Centre for Innovative Justice at RMIT University. Rob Hulls, of course you would know him as the former Attorney General of Victoria. Stan Winford, who is the Associate Director of RMIT's Centre for Innovative Justice. And also Narita Lewis, who is the Restorative Justice Manager and Convener. A warm welcome to the three of you. Rob Hulls, let's start with you. This is something that you've spoken publicly about. It's something that you're very passionate about when it comes to restorative justice. Why? Well, first of all, can I say uh, to Nick, wow, what a a very passionate uh, expression about your horrible uh, experience. And thanks for sharing that with us, Nick. Um, Look, Rochelle, I've always taken the view that um, we need to try and create a justice system that can be a positive intervention in people's lives. People's lives will go along a certain track and they might have ups in their lives where they might get their first job, you know, fall in love. Then there could be down times in their life when there might be a death in the family. There could be, as a result, mental health issues, drug and alcohol issues, um, homelessness issues, long-term unemployment issues. And at that horrible stage, they might hit the justice system. It could be as a perpetrator. Uh, it could be as a victim. The view I've always taken is at that horrible stage in a person's life, the justice system and a person's contact with it can either push them further into the mire, further ruin their lives, if you like, or act as a bit of a, a trampoline and help bounce their lives back on track. And that's the sort of justice system I've always envisaged, one that can bounce people's lives back on track, put holistic support around them, offer them a whole range of options, uh, not just this one-size-fits-all adversarial option, um, which really leaves victims um, on the sidelines in many cases. And that's why restorative justice um, can offer victims, in many cases, um, better outcomes than our current processes. Rob, I know you had your own personal experience that helped drive some of your thinking about this. Yeah, I did, Nick. It was um, not too long ago. Uh, our house was broken into, our sanctuary, if you like. Um, I just got home from a from a knee operation and, you know, was in, in slumberland at one o'clock in the morning and the rest of the family were asleep and um, our house uh, was broken into, our car was stolen and smashed up. And um, the next day, uh, when I realised what had happened, I had a whole range of emotions. I, I was really angry, like really angry, uh, a bit frightened for my family. Um, I was concerned as to why my house was uh, the one that was broken into, why my house was chosen. Um, and I wanted the, the perpetrators caught and punished. But then as time went by, um, I actually thought, well, it would actually help me as a victim if I knew more about these people, um, if I uh, knew what led them to my door on that night. uh, Without knowing these types of things, I guess um, the view I took was what happened on that night was was a senseless traumatic event without any answers. Um, And so the view I took is that if I could meet with them, if I knew more about them, more about their lives um, and had the opportunity to see them as people, I could probably understand what happened in a different way. Mm. Um, And so, uh, yes, uh, it was a traumatic event, but I'm still of the view that if the opportunity arose at any stage, I'd actually like to meet with these people to let them know the trauma they inflicted on my family. A lot of people might think of you and your history as Attorney General and think, well, why now? You know, why do something that's a little outside the box now? How will this help? But when you look back over some of the changes that you made or some of the uh, things that you were instrumental in setting up, they probably seemed a little bit edgy at the time as well. When we look at our court system and courts that are set up specifically for whether it be domestic violence or whether it be our Koori courts, when we look at things that at the time seemed new that are now a part of either our court system or of our law enforcement system, Is this the next one, do you think? I think that restorative justice is an extension, really, of the of the therapeutic problem-solving initiatives that um, I had the privilege of introducing as Attorney-General. Um, 
as I said, my focus as Attorney-General was um, looking at um, ways to um, ensure that people's contact with the legal system was a positive intervention in their lives. And, and the Koori Court came about after consultation with First Nations people here, but I had a, an experience as an Aboriginal legal aid lawyer up in Mount Isa many years ago, and I vividly remember, as I was yesterday, I was sitting in the back of the court waiting for my case to come on, and it was a coronial inquest, and it was a, a single vehicle collision car crashes into a tree on an outback road. The only witness is an old Aboriginal man who saw what happened. He was called into the witness box to give evidence at the coronial inquest. He looked around the court. He saw all the white faces. He saw the white face of the coroner, the white face of the police uh, officer, police prosecutor or the police officer assisting the coroner, all these white faces. And he said, I'll plead guilty. He hadn't been charged with anything. I almost had tears running down my eyes. I thought, what sort of justice system encourages an Aboriginal person who's there as a witness to plead guilty? Uh, The view he took was, oh, I'm a black man. I must have done something wrong. This is white fellas' justice system. I've got to get out of here. The best way to do it is plead guilty. So um, it was that type of experience that made it clear to me that our justice system was failing many people and we had to ensure that we created problem-solving approaches, holistic support put around people who come before our justice system. I'm interested in getting a bit of a history on it. This might be more of a question for Stan. I'm honestly not sure, but how long have we been trying to work on restorative justice? And and I guess how much of a sense have we got in terms of how well it's working? Well, in our jurisdiction in Victoria, we've got youth group conferencing. So restorative justice is an option for young offenders. So if you're a victim of a crime committed by young people, then it might be an option for you. But if you're an adult in Victoria, an adult victim of crime, it's not really an option for you. There's a new process that um, responds to family violence that the Department of Justice has set up. Um, but yeah, in some, in many ways, we're lagging the rest of the country. In the ACT, for example, since 2018, uh, any adult victim of any crime could participate in a restorative process. Uh, in New Zealand, uh, it's been going strong for many, many years, and in fact, it's a default option for people over there. So you opt mm-hmm. out if you don't want to participate in restorative justice. There's a text here from Catherine that says to meet with the perpetrator a thousand times no having to face the perpetrator in brackets a random stranger in court was bad enough i wouldn't want any person anywhere near me or my family ever again and there's other texts as well saying this is just something that even though in theory i support i'm not sure that it's something that you know i would want to do narita lewis you're the restorative justice manager and convener at rmit i mean you must get reactions like that a lot absolutely and thanks so much for calling in and and sharing your experience and i'm I'm sorry, it sounds like you have had um, a very difficult experience where you've had to face down um, a perpetrator in court. So, um, yeah, sending warmth your way. And I think that's absolutely fair enough to say I've I've thought about that um, scenario of meeting the person face-to-face in a conversation and it's not for me. And that's um, absolutely fair enough. And it shouldn't, be, shouldn't ever be mandatory. Um, and it shouldn't ever be um, something that people feel pressured to do as a victim or a victim survivor. But I talk to people every day who are victims or victim survivors of sexual violence who say, actually, I'd really like to meet with this person. Um, there are things that I want to find out or things I want to express that uh, the justice process, if they experienced it, didn't deliver for me. Um, and so for me, in my process of recovering and responding to the harm I've experienced... Um, I really think that sitting down with this person in a safe and supported way would help me. Is there evidence that it does or is there evidence in the other direction that it could potentially, even though at the time you may feel like this is what I need, that it may cause more harm, it may cause more trauma? So I've never come across any evidence that suggests um, it's detrimental. There is a very strong evidence base about the benefits it can deliver victims in terms of their satisfaction with the process. There's evidence that it can assist in um, addressing post-traumatic stress symptoms. Um, And that includes victims of very serious crimes, um, family members of people who have died, um, victim survivors of sexual violence, family violence. There is um, a clear emerging evidence base that shows that there are benefits. Of course, it does have to be done properly and safely. But if certain conditions are satisfied, um, the evidence is there that it it can help people. I think for me too, though, as well as those studies, um, the people I speak to directly, that's what's really persuasive to me. I mean, people 
are the experts on their own lives and on their own recovery. So people saying, I've thought really deeply about this and um, and this is what I need to do. For me, that's really persuasive. Nori, there are a couple of texts in, uh, kind of interested. Greg saying, can this work if, say, the perpetrator's not remorseful? Uh, someone else saying, I'm just worried that you'd meet them and they show no, reg- uh, no regret, no understanding mm. of the impact. Uh, you mentioned the conditions have to be right. I mean, I- is this about making sure that both parties are going into this in the right way? Yeah, fantastic question. And um, it does need to be done carefully. So Open Circle, um, which is the restorative service I manage, which is part of the Centre for Innovative Justice, we have a very careful preparation process where we work with the person harmed and the person responsible quite intensively long before we bring them together. And there's a lot of um, checking, really, that um, the person responsible is going to be able to participate in a respectful way. So we don't bring people together um, unless we're confident that it is going to be a respectful and constructive um, interaction. Um, I, I must say that in my experience, some people, even people responsible for very serious crimes, um, do have that need to be accountable and um, sometimes are very willing to meet with the victim and do what they can to address the harm they've caused. You're on the Conversation Hour. Rochelle Hunt, Nick Healy with you. Also in the studio is Rob Hulls, Stan Winford and Narita Lewis who are from the Restorative Justice Centre, the Innovation Justice Centre at RMIT. This is the Conversation Hour. On ABC Radio Melbourne and Victoria. Rochelle Hunt with you in Melbourne. Nick Healy joins you from ABC Shepparton. We're talking restorative justice. Towards the end of last year, there was a piece that was put on to ABC Radio, on to our AM program, where a mother and a husband, a mother and a father, had participated in restorative justice. And they met, so her their daughter was only 15 years old at the time and died in a car accident. And the, the young man driving the car was her partner, was unlicensed. And of course, as you can imagine, they were living with extreme amounts of grief. They decided to participate in restorative justice and they went and met the young man and here's a little bit of what the parents experienced at the time i was thinking what are we doing why are we doing this to ourselves we've been through so much why do this as well you know as soon as my husband saw him he just hugged him it's something i will never like never forget it gave us the power to ask the questions we wanted to in our way and for him to understand the impact that it had So that was Tracy Larson talking about her daughter there. Can I put that to you, Stan? I remember kind of holding my breath in the car listening to that and the reaction that the first thing her husband did was hug him. Does that surprise you? It it sounds surprising, but no, we've heard that um, in several examples of work that we've done. Um, I suppose, you know, some of the people that participate are pretty amazing in their willingness to kind of forgive people and um, to enter into that sort of conversation with people who have caused such immeasurable harm to their loved ones. But um, it does happen and it happens fairly frequently. And between 2015 and 2018, we actually ran a pilot program looking at restorative justice in relation to motor vehicle collisions that resulted in death. And many stories like that came out of um, came out of that program. Um, among other things, we had... Um, you know, a young man who uh, killed uh, a woman's brother and um, the woman's brother came together with that young man and out of that um, came some incredible outcomes, including, um, you know, him honouring her brother by volunteering at the same soup kitchen that he'd volunteered at, uh, that he committed to her as a form of accountability to address his alcohol issues in a way that his sentence in the prison system had never delivered. So, you really can get some incredible outcomes for people and um, it's not for everyone and you know, it's entirely voluntary but in some cases it can provide some of those answers and yeah, some outcomes that are quite incredible. Stan, I don't want to generalise but I'm getting a sense from these conversations that this can be particularly beneficial for young perpetrators um, who have maybe you know, made some errors being able to take some steps into turning their lives around. Yeah, well I think um, our youth group conferencing program in Victoria is a good way of helping young people understand uh, the impact of what's occurred on the victim, particularly when they meet the victims involved directly. Um, It can also um, enable the victims to kind of say to them, look, 
we don't want you to do this in the future and the best thing you can do f- to atone for what's happened is to change your behaviour and um, for, for young people that can be a very powerful catalyst for change and I think uh, Julie Edwards later on will talk a bit about that because that's a program that uh, her organisation supports. Lewis Peeler is the Chair of Regional Aboriginal Justice Committee and has called our talkback line. Good morning, Lewis. Welcome. What did you want to say? Yeah, I just wanted to say that um, I'm, as Chair of the Regional Aboriginal Justice Advisory Committee in the Eastern Region, we are currently running a pilot project. We've called it Lochbadan, which is the Yorta word for talking together. So restorative justice, also known as group conferencing, um, and we've been uh, piloting this uh, specifically to target our youth um, as a means of uh, addressing the uh, high incarceration rate of our people. Mm. And um, as an outcome, I guess, of the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody. Lois, are you seeing a good response to this? Are you getting a lot of people interested in being involved? Yes, we've we've only just started the the training. It's it's a, a training program that um, will be through the Australian Association of Restorative Justice accreditation process. We've had over a hundred people come to the training days, and so as I said, we've just commenced, but we've had very positive feedback. Is this something you would like to see more of? I mean, given that you're seeing such success here, Lois. I think one of the issues that we would like to see um, is that, uh, and uh, I heard the New Zealand model and the ACT model both cited in this conversation and we've looked at those and particularly how in Queensland it's been used in um, in uh, youth detention. But I think in Victoria they need to have a legislative change so that the young people can opt out of the process rather than opting in. Lois, that's actually fascinating. Thank you so much. Um, Lois Peel is chairing the Regional Aboriginal Justice Committee, talking about the, her own work on, on this particular restorative justice model. And we've had a text in from Heather in Frankston. She's saying she's done a bit of research with young women in Brisbane, prison. She spoke with a young woman who'd actually participated in this youth model. She'd broken into someone's home, and when she heard that there was a young child in that house with her, she didn't want to sleep in a room anymore. She was so scared about what the impact of her, yeah. um, uh, her break-in had been. She realised she was sorry. She she actually saw that impact on her own behaviour. Rob Hulls, there's a text here that says, my son was killed a year ago when a car coming through a giveaway sign failed to give way. Uh, my son was on a motorbike. He was going faster than he should and it contributed to the accident. The driver of the car has been left with no ramifications at all. When we asked the police for a restorative justice with the driver, there was a refusal point that was something that they wouldn't entertain. Are there roadblocks, do you think? I mean, given that you're, you can see this from both sides now, as somebody who is out of politics and is looking at restorative justice is working hard towards that. But there would be some people, I could imagine, from the inside that would be thinking, no, we don't need any new ways of doing this. We have our system and that works. Yes, there are some who take that view that the adversarial system um, I describe as the one-size-fits-all system uh, is the only system uh, that we should be utilising. But there's also a myth out there that um, all victims want the same thing, that um, victims just want the perpetrator to be punished, to go to jail for a long period of time, throw away the key, and that'll satisfy victims' needs. It's just not true. Um, Victims have a range of needs following a crime, um, and, you know, they want things like answers uh, about the offending, uh, answers that can't always be provided by the current legal process. They want their voices to be heard. Uh, they want to participate uh, in the response to the crime. They want to be treated with respect and dignity. They want the offender to be held accountable. Uh, they want to prevent the harm that they've suffered from happening to, to anyone else. And restorative justice is a way that can sit alongside, not instead of, but can sit alongside our current processes that can meet many of the needs of victims that are not being met by our current processes. That is something I was fascinated about. Where does restorative justice fit in with the current court system? I mean, could we see it being used to um, help reduce sentence lengths for people who are willing to be involved? Is there any sense of how they might go side by side? 
Yeah, well, it's still being developed in the adult system here and there are some challenges in terms of how courts can take restorative processes into account and at the moment in Victoria we don't have any legislation really that deals with that. But in the youth system, for example, where a restorative youth group conference has taken place, that is something that can be taken into account by the Children's Court Magistrate when they're sentencing the young people and it helps them understand, for example, whether that young person has demonstrated remorse or the extent to which they've understood the impact of their actions and all those things are relevant for sentencing purposes. I suppose here when we do it in the adult system, often we're doing it after a sentence has occurred, so it's actually not influencing the sentence. And of course, um, because it's entirely voluntary, if um, a person who's experienced harm, a victim of crime, doesn't want to participate and they're worried about it changing the sentence, then, you know, it just doesn't go ahead. Mm -hmm. So it can operate, we think, as a complementary process for criminal justice processes. And can I just add... um uh, responding to sexual violence that adults are responsible for is a focus of Open Circle. And to pick up on these points about does restorative justice have to impact the sentence of the person responsible? Um, not necessarily, as Stan's just explained. And this is particularly relevant, I think, in response to sexual violence because that that is of grave concern sometimes to victim survivors. Um, but for, for us, the um, opportunity that restorative justice presents is... In the context of sexual violence, we know the vast majority of cases never get near the legal system. And of those that do, there's a very high attrition rate. So of the, the cases that are reported to police, um, you know, a small number compared to other types of crime make it through to a conviction. So for me, there's even more need to, res- to offer restorative justice as well. So if a victim survivor of sexual violence is thinking, I really want a response to what I've experienced, but perhaps, and we know that there are many barriers that keep people from reporting or there's an informed decision. I don't want to engage the justice system. But what if you don't get the response that you're hoping for, as some of the texts have said? And then what services, what wraparound services are there so that if the victim does get the opportunity to ask those questions, to hear those responses, and then it does potentially create more trauma and put that victim and survivor in a worse situation... What then? What what safety net do we have? Well, I think there are safety nets in terms of um, the way that we proceed is very much working with um, sexual assault prevention and response services to support victim survivors through the process. But the other thing I'd say is I think we need to trust victim survivors themselves. So if they're really aware of the possibilities and we've done really careful preparation with them and really careful preparation with the person responsible. So there aren't going to be too many surprises when people come together. But I think there is also a possibility that... There's always a possibility that the victim survivor doesn't get quite what they're looking for. But I think they should be the ones to be able to decide, I want to try this. And I think um, we can be a little bit overprotective and say, oh, no, that's too risky. Um, But... Really, the victim survivor um, is the person who needs to decide what their recovery should look like. Narita Lewis is with you, as is Stan Winford and Rob Hulls. They're from the Centre for Innovation Justice at RMIT University. This is The Conversation Hour on ABC Radio Melbourne and Victoria. Rochelle Hunt and Nick Healy with you. This text is from Lorraine, Nick. We might go into this in just a little later that says restorative justice works really well in schools as well. And I've heard quite a handful of schools are looking at a form of restorative justice in conflict resolution or if somebody causes harm on somebody else within the school environment, teaching a concept like or a version of restorative justice from a really young age, which is something that kind of blew my mind. I was like, yeah, actually... We could start to teach this from the beginning. We absolutely could. I mean, we teach every other kind of aspect of punitive justice in schools. You know, you get in trouble, you should be able to have restorative justice as well. (laughs) Absolutely. And again, you know, something that we have been hearing from from everyone today is that this can be incredibly effective for younger members of of society, younger members of the community um, to get a grounding of the impact of their actions. Julie Edwards is the CEO of the Jesuit Social Services. And Julie, you've done a lot of work in this space and... Look, it's an emotive topic and it's an individual concept to think about who this is going to help and if this is going to help. What have you discovered in the work that you've done? 
Uh, thanks very much. And hi, I know your guests there. Nice to uh, be online with you here. Um, yeah, we have been involved in this work since 2003 and we have learnt a lot along the way, I suppose, about what works and um, your colleagues there um, have nailed it really. Uh, a lot is actually about the preparation um, because it is something that we need to take great care of. People have been harmed and we're very conscious of that at Jesuit Social Services about not wanting to do any further harm. So yeah, while it's set up to, um, I suppose, increase the young person's uh, understanding of the effect of their actions and help them reset their path. We also know that it is very beneficial for victims and the research is coming in uh, very strongly about that. But we have endless anecdotes uh, which tell us that from people who actually want to engage the young person to work with them, offer them a job, uh, right through to um, just saying to the young person, we just want you to get your life back on track mm. and to go back to school or something. So we see it every single day. And um, as I said, though, I think the point that was made, it's not a one-size-fits-all approach. And we talk about the conference, but really it's a whole approach. And so we need to take that approach all the way through and therefore the preparation and what happens after the conference are as important as the actual uh, conference itself when people are brought together. Julie, you mentioned about not wanting to do more harm. What do you look for, I guess, in the perpetrator? I mean, what sort of attitude are you hunting mm. for to know that they'll be right for something like this? Mm. We are looking for a sense of recognition of the wrong that they have done and a sense of remorse. Now, when I say that, that's not always immediately um, obvious and that's why the preparation, Nick, is really important because a young person is often um, very freaked out and um, very ashamed or the whole range of, of emotions that are going on there. And so we really work with the young person, though, first of all, to really examine what's happened, to hear what they're saying, to hear about what was going on for them at the time um, and to help them take responsibility. So we don't want to get people in a room where you've got a, a young person, you know, going, oh, this is all rubbish or, mm. or whatever. We want them to be in a position where they're ready to hear. So that preparation is very important. Julie, and Nick and I spoke about this off air. How far back... And how long can the chain of restorative justice be? We know a lot of perpetrators of crime have been victims of crime themselves and come from yes. a long line. At what point does then restorative justice work for the perpetrator and stopping whether it be generational uh, yes. crime? You know, Can it continue like that? I mean, does that just go down a rabbit hole that is too big? Look, I think we have to try to intervene and you've really nailed it by saying that. We know that in terms of the young people who are in custody at the moment, 66% of children are themselves victims of abuse, trauma or neglect. So you're correct that many of them have ended up either in custody or having offended, having been victims themselves. And that has never been dealt with properly. So the other thing I suppose I'd like to say is restorative justice is an approach. Um, the conference is in a way simply a mechanism for intervening at a point in time. But we would love to see, and I've already heard you you're speaking about this today, restorative approaches in a sense embedded across many of our systems in education, for example, where rather than exclude a young person from school, um, that we actually engage in restorative processes to, you know, um, reduce further reoffending, to help the young person take responsibility and repair the damage done. We're actually asked often to go into schools, um, to go into custody, uh, to go into out-of-home care settings. Um, all of these places would really benefit from having staff trained in restorative approaches mm. so that when something comes up we can go stop let's just put our pens down or let's just put our laptop to the side and let's deal with what's happening um, so it's an approach and we need staff who are really uh, capable I suppose of intervening in a non-punitive way but not avoiding dealing with the problem we're very clear about that we have to deal with it if we want to help the young person reset their lives.
Julia, it's really interesting you said that, and thank you, Julia Edwards, who's with uh, Jesuit Social Services, because we've got Anne on the line, who is a retired teacher who trained in the field of restorative justice. Anne, are you there? I am, yes. And what were your experiences working with this within a school system as a teacher? Um, Very, very positive. So I had a regional role and I was trained in restorative justice approaches, and part of that role was training schools that were... Um, interested in going along that line so um, but uh, individually I'd also work in schools um, around uh, exploring the harm in certain cases and sometimes it was valuable for me to come in as an outsider and run a conference if that was required Um, and very much um, supporting the perpetrator as well as the victim so in one circumstance there was a um, high level incidence of bullying so the bully's parents were also um, invited to the conference to support the child who was, um, I guess, the, the perpetrator. Mm. Um, and that was an outstanding result for the wow. for everyone in that whole conference context, parents, the, the child who had been the victim. So, But it also sat inside the school that looked at restorative approaches holistically, so it wasn't just a one-off thing. Um, so part of my experience as well was just looking at schools where if there was something that occurred that was around um, exploring harm that that wasn't like someone said before, um, Mm. an immediate suspension that resulted. And and did you find that schools were... Sorry, I was going to say, did you find that schools were very open to this? Were they finding it was making an impact just in the way they could teach and the way they could maintain discipline? Uh, uh, Very much so. And even at a classroom level, just looking at a... A variation of a conference where you might have a classroom conference around just um, perhaps the general tone of the classroom and things that were happening at a lower level and sitting in a circle and exploring uh, some of the the behaviours that were were um, occurring and uh, looking at looking at the children as well having some involvement in changing the behaviours. It's incredible, and when we talk about you know, starting work early on and being there prior, you know, having support networks and having systems in place to try and stop crimes happening in the first place. And I'm learning so much about that. And thank you. Before we go back to Julie Edwards, who's the CEO of Jesuit Social Services, Jeanette has called through as well. Good morning, Jeanette. Hello. What did you want to add? Well, I agree with so many things that Anne just said, so I won't repeat them, but I'm a retired (laughs) principal. And some years ago, we began to implement um, restorative justice policies in the school. We sent our staff off to get trained, but we also made sure there were some teachers who were experts while everybody had some knowledge of it. We found that we needed to rewrite our policies You know, like most schools, we had a diary with rules and regulations and what happened to people who bully and that sort of thing. So we rewrote all of that. And I think that in terms of school culture, that's one of the secrets. And we found that just from preps upwards, you know, preps and they're throwing down somebody's lunch on the ground or something like that, we could deal with it that way. By middle school, it's bullying and we would get everyone together. And the other thing I wanted to add was the bystanders are very important. It's not just victims and perpetrators, but in the school situation, it's the good, reliable friends who are bystanders and can help and be a witness and also be part of the process. Wow. Jeanette, I mean, it's interesting because we haven't actually mentioned the bystander phenomenon no. yet during this. And obviously in a school environment, uh, it might be a little easy to bring them on board, but it sounds like it's an essential part of the equation. It really is. And, you know, teachers know who's reliable, who's likely to tell the truth, but so do students. And they know the ones that they will listen to. And it just really helped to have a non-threatening situation where you weren't sitting behind a desk, but you were sitting in a circle and everybody was at the same level and sitting side by side. And we found that that defused a lot of situations. Gosh, when you think about the roles that principals have in schools and the responsibility they have and the lives that they can potentially shape, that's just one of the examples as to why principals are such incredible people. Jeanette, thanks so much for your call. Just finally, Julie Edwards, as the CEO of Jesuit Social Service, Jeanette just mentioned there, you know, so even that bystanders are a part of the process. And I found that term interesting because if we teach that process 
at school. I mean, we are hoping that young people don't need to fall into the justice system in any way at all. But there are chances in our lives, either as the victim, as the perpetrator, or as somebody that is the witness, that we will be a part of the process. How important is it to start to teach that from an early age? It's almost like this little window of opportunity to step right in and and reset people's understanding of what happens rather than I'm going to hit the person back or I'm going to whatever else they're going to do. So it's so important that we use those opportunities for learning and growth. I just want to say one thing before we finish up and um, uh, Rob and Dan and others know this, that when a young person goes to court, for example, and they'll get um, sentenced, they often don't even know what's happened. They actually haven't really understood the whole process. And so it just happens very fast and it is a missed opportunity to pause and help that young person take account. So that can happen in a schoolyard, it can happen in a court, it can happen in an out-of-home care setting. We've really got to step in and because we're trying to create the sort of society where there will be less crime, where mm. we're kinder, and it really is about building relationships and helping people be reflective and understand the impact of their actions. And actually, we all want to be healed and connected in those relationships. It just takes time to do it properly. Julie Edwards, thank you so much. Julie's the CEO of uh, Jesuit Social Services. Rob, Stan, Narita, who should be asking for restorative justice? Mm. Is the impetus on... The perpetrator, should the victim, the victim survivor be the one to, to step forward? Does it make an impact on who asks for it? Uh, it really does, and that's a great um, question and great perception. Um, in our program, which is very much focused on harms committed by adults, we only um, progress matters where the person harmed or the victim is initiating the process. We'd be very reluctant. Um, there might be certain circumstances where we'd make an exception, but... Um, you know, say there's been a number of years passed since the incident, um, we're not going to approach a victim or a victim survivor out of the blue and risk re-traumatising them by um, inviting them to a process that the person responsible has initiated. I think it's also really important that it's offered as a choice for victims and victim survivors. Um, that in itself can be really empowering, that they have a sense of, okay, my power's been taken away because I've been a victim of crime. Sometimes the experience of being involved in a criminal prosecution is quite disempowering for victims, but they have the opportunity of, oh, there's a restorative justice process that I might choose to engage in and I might choose to invite the offender or the person responsible. Whether or not they um, agree, the person responsible, that can still be quite an empowering process for the victim survivor. I've spoken, or the victim, spoken to some um, victims and victim survivors who've said, oh, just in myself finding that strength that I was prepared to do this and I was prepared to go into a room with them, even though they've said no, that's really given me something and some self-knowledge and some power back. There's so many different opinions um i guess thoughts on this as well and some of the stories that people choose to share with us on this station never ceases to amaze me here's just one of them this text says my dad was murdered at port arthur my brother my sister not to mention my mum, who survived that day faced the killer in court i didn't i just couldn't at the time my brother mentioned how it helped him to take away the evilness of the person that he just didn't have the mental capacity to be evil this then changed his perception at the time from anger and hate to a form of pity and when we talk about the different extremes of evilness of crimes that are committed against Mm. people there are so many different levels there and to talk about that extreme but there's one family member there that has chosen their own path you know to to not face the killer and you would need to respect that i would find it interesting in that family dynamic though that one has chosen not to and the others have rob hull's We hear a lot and we haven't probably heard it as much as we have in the past that we can be soft on crime, you know, and that we shouldn't be soft on crime. Is restorative justice something that's seen as being soft and that it's giving perpetrators an easy way out? You know, I'm just going to meet with this person, it's going to reduce my sentence or it's going to make me look better, that it's it's not being tough on crime. Um, Restorative justice actually, unlike the adversarial system that currently exists, 
puts victims at the centre of the process. And that's not soft. Like, that's actually giving victims a voice. Of course, there needs to be safeguards in place. But when you strip away the jargon, I guess, restorative justice is basically two people being helped to have a hard conversation about something bad that has happened. It's not rocket science, and people shouldn't be frightened um, by it. In my own personal circumstances, um, after my house was broken into, members of the family were frightened, obviously. Um, but uh, if I was able to meet with the people that broke into my house, I think I could probably begin to understand what happened in a different way, um, perhaps see it as a, a consequence of a whole chain of events that um, had uh, derailed perhaps the lives of the people that broke into my house. I think I'd be less inclined to see the people involved as frightening and that would be but of assistance to me. But that's that thing. I mean, there's people here that say you seem to entertain the scenario that perpetrators will feel remorse for their actions. I mean, there's a very good chance that that won't be the case. That it won't be, oh, okay, it all makes sense now. There's a reason behind it. And, and restorative justice won't be for everybody. Um, mm. Unfortunately, we have a an adversarial system that we're saying is for everybody. It's a one-size-fits-all approach. The figures show that um, sexual assault victims, only 1%, 1 in 100 victims of sexual assault end up reporting to police, being believed, going through a committal, going through a trial, and it results in a conviction against the perpetrator. 1 in 100. Are we saying that's all we can offer victims of sexual assault, this one-size-fits-all approach? No. We have to have alternatives that can sit beside our current approaches that can better meet the needs of victims. It won't be for everybody, but it can, and our experience shows, can better meet the needs of many victims that we've dealt with. Rob, I heard the frustration about this soft on crime. It is a phrase we hear so often, and um, I, I find myself frustrated with it as well, because surely the idea of a justice system is to reduce crime, and if that can be done by reducing recidivism, by taking repeat f offenders and finding an environment where they can say, well, I, I, I now know why I will stop doing that, surely that is the end goal here. Oh, yeah, and look, Nick, we know that... Um you know, 90% of women in our jails have themselves been victims of sexual assault or family violence. 90%, but we're locking mm. them up. We know that, you know, 44% of men and 33% of women in our jails have an acquired brain injury compared to 2% in the general population, but we lock them up. Um, we just have to think smarter. There's no question of doubt about that. And building more and more jails not only doesn't make us safe as a safer as a community, but it costs a huge amount yeah. of money that could be going into schools and hospitals and things like that. Simon's in Geelong. Simon, you're a teacher. Where does restorative justice fit into, I guess, your bag of armoury when it comes to being a teacher and, and helping shape young people's lives? Um, I think it can ideally be good, but in the practicalities of uh, running a classroom day to day, um, it, uh, it needs to be very carefully introduced and it, it needs to um, come with consequences. A, a lot of schools in Victoria have adopted this practice with um, and then sort of thought that that's, that's fine and, and consequences can fall to the wayside. But um, that assumes a very rational thinking, mature um, student who, who has empathy and, and that sort of thing. Um, so it needs to be carefully introduced, particularly by principals and a lot of the guests that you've got there are not the sort of people who are actually spending six hours a day in classes with students who may or may not want to be in that Were classroom. Were you given training in it in any way? I mean, we heard before, you know, from Julie from Jesuit Social Services, sometimes groups, services will come to the school and help. But, I mean, how was restorative justice introduced to you as a teacher? It is. Uh, there are professional development opportunities um, delivered to full staff cohorts, uh, certainly, but um, I don't feel that it's sufficient. And um, I've got to say, a lot of the training, some of the things that we're taught, taught to ignore certain behaviours and and pick and choose what um, you know what we can sort of attend to. And um, to be honest, I, I'm sure that you there would be a massive correlation between teachers who have decided to, to leave the profession wow. at the same time of introducing restorative practices. I definitely have seen that amongst uh, peers myself. Simon, thank you so much for that. I, I'm really curious, Dan. We're, we're hearing a lot of great anecdotes that show how much this works. Mm. What about the stats? What about the numbers? What do we know about sort of the, say, the effect that a restorative justice can have on recidivism? 
Well, broadly, um, the numbers suggest, and this is UK research, that about 14% of people who participate in a restorative process don't go on to re-offend. Um, and in our system at the moment, for example, in Victoria, about you know 40 to 50% of people who've um, been imprisoned will be imprisoned again within two years. So very high rates of recidivism. I suppose... Um, it's important to think about this not just from the point of view of how it impacts um, reoffending rates, but also what does it offer for you know the community, what does it offer for victims, um, and I think there's something to be said for the benefits of the process for victims in recovery and healing from crime, not just in preventing reoffending, and those uh, rates are reflected in very high rates of satisfaction for victims. So, um, around eighty-five to 90% in some studies of victims are satisfied with the restorative process compared with their experience of a criminal justice process. There's a text here from Paul and Gisborne that says the problem is we have a legal system, not a justice system. Final comments, Rob Hulse, would you agree with that? Is it because we think about this as a legal system or do we need to, can we have both oh, side well, by side? Certainly what I saw in my time in northwest Queensland, it was not a justice system at all, particularly for First Nations people. And many of the practices uh, that we use um, in our supposed justice system are past their use-by date. We have to think outside the square. If you don't keep innovating when it comes to justice, you go backwards, and the justice system is such an important part of our democratic process that we have to continue to refresh it, continue to innovate, otherwise it lets people down. A huge thank you to the three of you for joining us in the studio today. And there's plenty of information on your website as well. Nick and I sort of both worked our way mm. through the website today. So for those maybe that are listening, whether it be a school, if you are a victim or if you have a family um, member or someone that you love that is a survivor of crime and you think that this is maybe something for you, you can go to the Centre for Innovation Justice at RMIT. Rob Hulls is the director of that particular centre and, of course, you would also know him as the former Attorney-General Stan Winford, the Associate Director, and Narita Lewis as well, who's the Restorative Justice Manager. Thank you so much for joining us on the Conversation Hour today. Thank you. Pleasure. Thank you. And Nick Healy, mate, thank you as well, because if, pe for people that missed the beginning of this program, you, you know, shared something incredibly big and close to you. Has it changed your mind on whether or not you would meet the the man that murdered your sister? Would you... Now, after that hour, has it changed your mind or has it solidified that, yes, you would? It's solidified. It's made me realise that it would have been, for, for a younger me, incredibly beneficial and may have taken off, uh, you know, a lot of the distress I felt. Thank you. Thanks for, for sharing, Nick. I'm just going to give a number, 1800RESPECT is 1800 737 732. I'll be back with you tomorrow. Take care.